Good morning. Uh, <laughs> today's reading is Hebrews 9 through 12, uh, 6, 9 through 12. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Anna. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, good morning. Have you ever started something that you did not finish? Yes. <laughs> Maybe it was a painting, or perhaps a, uh, let's see, a business. Maybe it was a sport. Maybe it was a marathon, or learning a language or playing an instrument. I have a guitar from three Christmases ago that multiple times I said to myself, I'm gonna learn this, I'm gonna do this, and I still, I cannot play the guitar. What happened? When you started something that you wanted to finish but you didn't finish it, why did that, why did that happen? If, if you're like me, for the reason for the guitar, initially you have a burst of enthusiasm. You're all excited, you wanna be able to learn this thing or to do this thing, and you have this goal, but then, Challenges come, then discouragement comes, then the, the drudgery of it happens, the challenges, the grind, and then eventually you get discouraged and you quit. But what about what you've started and you have finished? What was the difference? Was there no challenge? Was there no grind? Were there no, was there no discouragement in something that you did start and that you did get to the goal of what you wanted to accomplish with that? Those of you that wanted to start an instrument and now can play an instrument well, was there no challenge or difficulty in that? There was, right? Of course there is. So what's the difference? The difference is when we want to accomplish something, when we want to get to that goal, even when the challenges come, even when the discouragement happens, even when the grinds of just the difficulty of it, because of the, how much we want it, that we think it's worth it, when the challenges come, we just put one foot in front of the other. Sometimes that's all you can do on that day or on that month of trying to learn it, trying to, trying to get to that goal. One foot in front of the other until eventually you achieve that goal. You press on. Christianity, following Christ, has some similarities in that. Some days, all we can do with the discouragement, with the challenges, when at times we feel like quitting... What do we do? We remember who we are following, that he is worth it, that he is worthy of our whole lives, that he is worthy of putting one foot in front of the other on some days when that's all we can do to press on. And what we learn in scripture, one of the differences in that, in following Christ, is that the very ability to put, if you will, one foot in front of the other, to continue to follow after God, is by the grace of God in us. It's by the grace of Christ. So, a little bit of background. Last, two weeks ago, before the state of the church, we were in Hebrews 6, verses 1 through 8. I'm going to call it the trauma passage. The ice bucket of water 
on the back of the Hebrews listening to this message and, and the warning of, of, that we heard of crucifying once again the Son of God and being unable to repent. And they're thinking, what is he saying to us? And it was scary. And what we talked about was how it was, try, it was being brought across that the spiritual immaturity, the spiritual laziness that was being addressed in that warning could be an indicator of something even worse than just spiritual laziness. It could be an indicator that some were never saved in the first place. But what we see in today's passage is a softer tone. What we see in today's passage is that the author, the speaker, had confidence that the majority of the church that he was speaking to at the time was, in fact, saved. It's really the main idea of chapter 6, verses 9 through 12. Most of the church was, in fact, saved, belonged to the things of salvation. Most of the church was saved, yet needed a push to press on in faith. But needed a press, a push to press on in faith. So we see in verses 9 through 10 that word of relief. And then after that, a word of hope, to press on in hope, in verses 11 through 12. So there's the direction of the message today. First, we see the word of relief in verses 9 through 10. You can imagine after verse 9, which I'll remind you of in a second, a collective sigh taking place when they hear these words in verse 9. And then after verse 9 comes verse 10, for the reason for the confidence that they belonged to the Lord, that they were saved. So the collective sigh comes after verse 9. Though we speak in this way, as in the harsh warning he just gave, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. So they just had that very harsh warning, sober admonition just given to them. But then he says, yet in your case, beloved, loved ones, we feel sure, we're confident of better things, things that belong to salvation. And you can imagine the collective like, Okay, (laughs) okay. You can also imagine some potentially saying, if you don't think that that warning applies to most of us when it comes to not being saved, why would you say it? Why would you say it? And this is where I want to give you just a brief reminder of why the warning is there in the first place. There's two reasons. One was because he wanted to wake him up. The bucket of of ice water was for a reason. The reason he went down this side road of initially talking about, uh, let's talk about how Christ is both our high priest and our king and how that connects with the line of Melchizedek. And he knew that as soon as he talked about Melchizedek, this name that they might not have been familiar with and how that ties in with a deeper understanding of Christ and his role, he knew that some of them would start to tune him out. I don't know who that is. I don't care about learning more. It was a spiritual laziness, a dull of hearing we saw in chapter 5, in the beginning of chapter 6. And he wanted them to wake up. He wanted them to have an assurance, we're going to see, of a hope for the rest of their life. And he wanted to wake them up. But then secondly, as we said said two weeks ago, no, no one can know if every single person in a congregation of a church has true lasting, saving faith, where the gospel has taken root. And so the warning 
is real. Back in Hebrews 3, he said, let's make sure there's not any one of us with an evil, unbelieving heart that will lead to falling away from the living God. And he'll end Hebrews in chapter 13 with a, make sure no one fails to obtain the grace of God. It's a real warning for some who very well may not have had a true saving faith in Christ where the gospel had not taken root. And so it's a, it's a true warning. But we see here in verses 9 through 12, the softer tone, the confidence that the majority, that most of the people he was talking to, he did believe and have confidence they belonged to Christ. They were saved. Yet in your case, beloved. So why the warning? Warnings are helpful. Warnings are at times needed for the church. It's needed. We don't like warnings. We don't like admonishments. We don't like exhortations. Part of that is because of the society in which we live. Has anyone noticed? Has anyone noticed that it seems that people are less and less and less okay in our culture with being told or having a conversation about something they don't already agree with? And it seems as if the topics are just growing. If you don't agree with me about the environment and how we should respond to the environment, you're either an idiot or uncaring or, or foolish or fill in the blank. If you don't agree with me about the environment, if you don't agree with me about politics, if you don't agree with me about sexuality, if you don't agree with me about fill in the blank, it just, then we don't want to talk about it. Then you're vilified. And if we think that that mentality of I'm right, you're wrong, let's move on, hasn't seeped its way into the church, our church, church at large, church in our country. Of course it has. Of course we're affected by that. And what that looks like, what that can often look like, is the mentality of me at the center. What I don't agree with, what I think is right, if you disagree, you're wrong, I'm right, and we put ourselves at the center rather than Jesus. And we don't want to hear anything that conflicts with our understanding or our, or our belief or hear about how we might be wrong or how we might need to be exhorted in some way. And that, that plays out in a bunch of different ways. Anna and I were in the car listening to a Christian radio song, and I won't name the station, not every Christian song has fantastic theology, okay? And in this, in this song, the lyrics went, I don't want to mess it up. It says, tuning out all that brings me down. And we sort of looked at each other, and even though I'm, I was driving at the time, I probably shouldn't have like, looked over that long. But tuning out all that brings me down. Do you see the problem in that lyric? That's giving the idea that everything that I don't like or don't want to hear or that might bring me down, I'm going to just tune it out. I'm going to not think about it. I'm going to move on. Talk about something else. When the reality is, we are people that need to hear consistently throughout our lives words, especially from people that know and care about us, that might, at that time, bring us down for our good, <laughs> to help us grow and change in ways that we're needed to, to be held accountable. 
please don't tune out everything you hear that you might disagree with or that might not feel good in the moment. And look, I'm saying this being very aware of my own tendency to not want to hear about anything that might bring me down or make me not feel great. This plays out in a bunch of ways in my life. I have learned recently, I have learned for the last almost two years, in marriage, I am more selfish and self-defensive than I thought. Where I am defending myself, and at times, Anna will say, this wasn't even about you. Why are you defending yourself? It's like way too frequent, okay? And in, in church life, someone might come up with a perfectly valid question about something about Terra Nova Church. And some, sometimes, you're, you're asking a great question, and what I'm hearing in my head is, uh, do you know what you're doing, and do you realize that you're not doing well in this ministry? That's not what you're saying sometimes. Maybe sometimes it is. <laughs> but I have to be okay with that. And I have to not make it about me. It's not about me. Let's have Christ at the center. Now, There's a quote from John Piper. It sounds a little bit, it might sound a little bit harsh, but I think it'll be helpful for me and for us to hear it based on this passage. Why is the warning here? Why is the exhortation here? Because it's needed and it's helpful for the church. He says, we don't need to be thin-skinned. We are chosen by God, loved by God, forgiven by God accepted by God, indwelt by God, guided by God, protected by God, strengthened by God, and God is more important than anyone else in the universe. We don't have to feel insecure. We don't have to be self-justifying or self-defensive or self-pitying. We can be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger, as James 1 says. And if we can relate to our enemies that way, How much more can we handle the tough love of those who come to us with hard words for our good? The writer to the Hebrews says, Beloved, loved ones, I've spoken to you this way because I love you. The writer to the Hebrews is calling us, by his example, to grow up and take the risks of love. He's also calling us to be less easily offended and less easily hurt. We have a massive foundation for our salvation in the death of the Son of God. And we have an advocate in heaven more powerful and more compelling than any accuser on earth. We should be the freest people on the earth to listen to criticism and take it into account and not be wounded or self-pitying or resentful. Did you hear that, Tori Arneson? (laughs) Let's not give in to or succumb to the society's pressure to make it all about us. Let's make it about Jesus. And as we do, we can begin to grow in confidence that we belong to the things of salvation. In verse 10, he gives the reason for the confidence that the majority of the church he's speaking to belong to Christ. Verse 10, For God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. I'm going to say that again. For God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. So why the confidence? 
that they belong to Christ, that they are, that they are saved. There's two reasons. Because of their affection, their love for God, and because of their fruit. What that affection, that love for God looks like in serving the saints. You see, he's convinced that the majority of people, they belong to that second soil in verses 7 through 8 of chapter 6, when at the end of that that strict warning of, look, remember, there could be the fact that some of you have experience of God and God's people and knowledge of God, but may, like the, some, some in the Israelite wilderness, Balaam, Judas, may actually be that soil that's not producing fruit, where the gospel has not taken root, where you were never saved in the first place. He said, that's possible. But what he's saying here is he is confident that because of their love for God, their affection for his name, and because of their fruit, they're part of that second soil, that he's confident that they're his. And he has confidence because of, at the time, right now, their present activity of serving the saints and their history of serving the saints and of loving God. Okay? Their history and their present activity of it. So let's talk first about their history. He doesn't give any specific examples, explanations of what he's talking about. What are these examples of them loving God and serving the saints in the past? I think we're going to understand what he's saying about examples when we get to chapter 10, verses 32 to 34, and he, bring, he reminds them that there are believers, there are Christians that were imprisoned for their faith, and they lovingly stood by the sides of those that were persecuted and thrown in prison for their faith. He's going to remind them of that. Remember what you've done, what you've, how you've shown your love for God in the past. And on top of that, we know it says that they joyfully had their goods plundered. And we think there's a good chance that was under Emperor Claudius when they removed believers from their homes. They joyfully gave up all that they had, all their material possessions. And he's reminding them of that to say, there have been examples already throughout your life as a Christian of how you have shown love for God and love for the saints. Here are some examples. He'll get more into detail in chapter 10. In the past, evidence, love for God and serving his people. And then he also says, as you still do, as in present activity of loving service for God's name in serving the saints. So I've spoken to a few of you since two weeks ago, and some that, you know, can I go around to every single person in this room? hundreds of people, and say, I have full assurance, 100% sure that you are a Christian. I don't think I can do that to everybody here. But there have been a few people that have come to me with some concerns of, how can I, this, the warning, it just seemed like, how do I know? And when I look at just so many people in Terranova Church that for years, years, have been faithfully serving God, who clearly have expressed their love for the Lord and how that shows itself and how they serve his church. It's just, he, he wants us to have assurance. He wants us to have confidence. And part of the way we do that is looking back at how has God moved in my heart? How has he changed me? How, where I've seen love, I know I've had love for him and how that's shown itself in the way that I've served his people. He wants us to have that kind of assurance in serving. And when I see that, 
80-something percent of our church wants to be actively involved in our tribes, like get involved in each other's lives, serve one another. Like these are great, these are great helpful ways of, of seeing that there's, God is moving in this church, and we can have an assurance for those of us that do love him and are serving his people that we are his, a longing for him, wanting to learn, wanting to grow in the faith, wanting to go deeper into the gospel and serve. Galatians 6 says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. God loves when his people serve each other. It touches his heart. Now, I'm not going to try to speak for every mom in the room here. It's a bad idea. However, can I, can I, I guess, ask, does it touch your heart when you see your kids serving their friends, their neighbors, their classmates, like honoring, serving, taking care of other people? Like, yeah, right? How much more so when they serve, care for, honor their brother or their sister? Does that move your, your heart? God loves when his people, when his children, care for, serve, honor each other. As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith, Galatians 6 says. And God is not unjust so as to overlook this loving service for his name and the way that it's shown in serving his people. What does he mean by that? God is not unjust as to overlook that. I think part of what that means is God does not forget a single time you serve one of his people. Not a single time. In fact, it says in Matthew, when you do it, Jesus said, when you do it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you've done it to me. Through God's empowerment in our lives through the Spirit of God giving us the longing to serve one another, and then when we go and do it and serve his people, the body of Christ, it's as if we're serving Christ himself. And you think he's going to forget that, overlook that? No. No. God does not forget the genuine, love-motivated service of his people, not any of it. You see, God truly started a work in the lives of this church, of the Hebrews. And he would finish what he started, and the, the author, the speaker, had confidence that he would. And when we look at our church, and how, how so many of us have past evidence of loving God and of serving him and his people, and are currently still doing it now, we can grow in our confidence, in our assurance of the future eternal grace of God. At times, we need a push. At times, we need exhortations to keep going. The Hebrews did as well. You see, God never needs a push, but we do at times to continue to serve him. A word of relief in verses 10 through 11. And then he gets to this word of hope in verses 11 through 12. This longing he has for this church to press on in hope. Look at verses 11 through 12. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. 
So here's the closing out of this section in Hebrews for now of a pause to warn, to exhort the church. Don't close off your ears. Don't be spiritually lazy. Dig in. Listen to what you're about to hear about Christ and how he relates with the line of Melchizedek to be our high priest and our king. Don't tune it out. Listen. Pay attention. And he closes off the warning in this section here, closing with verse 12. Why? Why the warning? Because he wants them to be confident. He wants to get rid of any false kind of assurance and open up their eyes and be fervent moving forward in serving the Lord. Romans 12, starting in verse 9, says, Let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. And then here it is. Do not be slothful. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Don't stop loving. Don't stop outdoing one another in showing honor. Don't stop making it about Jesus and not yourself. You see, it doesn't help to say to me or to say to each other, hey, stop making it about you. But the more that we see the beauty, the majesty, the wonder, the glory of Jesus, the more we want to stop making it about us and making it about the glory of his name. And the outflow of loving the true God is going to be serving his people, being connected to his body, the church. And listen, at times, can we be, always want to be honest, always want to be honest, there are times where we don't feel like being zealously serving the the church. We don't feel like zealously serving the name of God. We just don't always want to do that. It's not our natural inclination to do that, to to see other people as more valuable than ourselves, to honor one, to try to outdo one another in showing honor, to genuinely love other people. It just, it doesn't come naturally, and at times we lose the zeal, the fire seems to be going out. That happens. And when that happens, and maybe that's you right now, and you can acknowledge that now. I'm just at a place right now where the zeal, the fire is not there. Be truthful to God about that. And remember, what does he say? What does he say in this passage of how to press on, how to serve? Does he say through your own faith in yourself, your own ability, your own just make it happen? No. He says, through faith and patience. Be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Not faith in you, not faith in a family member, not faith, faith in God. Faith in him. A focus on Jesus. He will enable us to keep moving towards him, to keep persevering, to keep obeying, to keep serving his people and honoring his name. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the grace, but by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but Christ in me. Sounds a lot like the song we just sang, isn't it? Yet not I, 
but Christ in me. That's where that lyric comes from. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. Paul is acknowledging he's put in a lot of effort, a lot of work. There's discipline there. He doesn't, didn't always feel like serving God's people, the church, and honoring God's name, and living out the Christian life. He's acknowledging the hard work he put in, but also the very fact that it was the grace of Christ in his life that enabled one foot in front of the other, one day at a time. If apostasy is giving up the faith altogether, I get this from Kruger's commentary, Hebrews for you. If apostasy is giving up the faith altogether, the opposite of apostasy is not winning a gold medal, it's just finishing the race. It's just finishing the race. One foot in front of the other, one day at a time, by the grace of God in our lives. I want us to be a church that, the vast, that we are confident of the future grace of God, of faith that he will get us to the end, that he will fulfill all of his promise, all of his promises. And that's really what hope is all about. It's a faith directed toward the future, that he will get us there, that he will bring us home. Next week, we're going to see an example at Victorious Life Church when we come together to worship with them. An example of someone who, through faith and patience, inherited the promises in the next section in Hebrews 6. So I hope you join us for that as we, as we close out this message here. I want to uh, encourage you, if, you have, if anything from the message, from the scripture today, brought to your mind something that you want to be you want prayer for, you want to pray with somebody about, there will be people available. Just head over to that corner after the service if you want prayer, if it wasn't related at all to anything that was said, but there's something in your life, there's physical pain, there's relationships, there's, there's financial issues, there's someone you care about that's struggling, whatever it is, and you want prayer, there would be people ready to pray with you in the corner. Um, let's continue to be a praying church, and that leans wholly and fully on the grace of Jesus in all that we do every day, one day at a time. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. God, thank you for warnings, even when we don't want to hear it. Thank you, God, for the pushes that we need from your word, from the people in our life that you've put in our life, Lord, that know us, that care about us enough to say the hard things at times. And God, I pray that we, like the Hebrews that this message was directed towards, Lord, may we respond with obedience. May we respond in faith, in humility, in patience, that we don't just reject everything we hear that we don't like, but that we can listen, be slow to speak, slow to anger, take it in. And see, what is it from, what are you trying to show us? What are you trying to teach us? Help us care so much more about what you think and about what you want than what we think we want or need, Lord. We need your grace. We need your help with that, Lord God. And God, I pray for those of us who after going through the, the first verses of Hebrews 6 and that just chilling warning, God, I pray for those of us that that truly don't know you, where the gospel has not taken root, I pray, God, may we respond with accepting that warning 
and saying yes to Jesus and accepting that free gift of salvation that you paid such a costly price on the cross for us. I pray, Lord, for any of us who truly haven't accepted that, that we do. That we hear your word, that we don't harden our hearts. But accept you, Jesus. And Lord, I pray for those of us, the many of us who have a love for you, a longing for you. And we know, God, we look at, our, we look at what you've done in our lives in the past, and we see that. And we know that we want to be and are currently serving you today. Lord, I pray for that increased assurance, assurance of hope, knowing that, in the, that you will bring us home, that what you started is real and that you will finish it, that there is affection for us, from, from us to you in your name, that there is fruit because of your presence in us. And help us with assurance and confidence just press on. Thank you, God, for your word. Thank you that your word never comes back void, but you always accomplish the purposes for which you send it. And God, as we take communion, I pray, help us with confidence. Draw near to the throne of grace. And thank you again for what you did in giving yourself, your body, your blood to forgive us, to bring us into your family, to grow in confidence that we're yours. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.